0: It's time for Legally Speaking, joined as always by Michael Mulligan, Barrister and Solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Hey, good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Always interesting topics on the agenda. I'm looking at the first story here, and I know just enough Latin to know what the word for friend is. But the question is, what is an
1: amicus, and what do they do? Yes, indeed. We got some clarity on this point from the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, in, including the fact that uh, the plural of amicus are amikine. Uh, and, uh a, and amicus would be sort of translated to, to somebody who's a friend of the court, somebody who's a lawyer appointed to assist uh, the court in some way. Uh, and the background of this case involved a man who is charged with a, a double murder, two counts of first-degree murder. Um, and the man was obviously troubled, Uh, And there was some concern about whether he was fit to stand trial, but ultimately after uh, uh, assessments of that, he was determined to be fit. However, uh, he refused to have a lawyer represent him. He insisted upon representing himself, which I should say uh, is a protected right in Canada, right? You you don't force lawyers uh, on uh, to act for somebody um, if a person doesn't want that, Uh, That, I should say, along with a few other sort of key decisions in a criminal case are always decisions for the accused person uh, to make. And that's sort of viewed as a part of our tradition of individual autonomy and the adversarial system, right? And a a person can decide, do they want to have a lawyer? And what lawyer do they want to have, right? Uh, And a person is also free to make themselves key decisions in a criminal case, like, do they want to plead guilty or not guilty? Uh, What kind of trial do they want to have? Uh, Do they wish to testify? Things like that are all decisions for an accused person to make. And this man refused to have counsel. Uh, And so that led to uh, the trial judge uh, appointing, in this case, (laughs) Amakai. He started by appointing uh, one lawyer to help the man in the jury selection process, uh, and the lawyer did that. Uh, but then the trial started and things started to go off the rails. And they were going off the rails because of uh, how this man was conducting his own defense. Um, he would uh, refuse to ask questions of witnesses, uh, but instead uh, would uh, do things like get up and start expressing theories about conspiracy theories involving the FBI, the U.S. Army and mind control, hmm. uh, interrupting a judge, yelling and screaming uh and on uh, eventually uh, he wound up getting removed repeatedly from the courtroom and put in another room with a video link where the judge on apparently 60 occasions had to mute his microphone when he just wouldn't stop yelling or being disruptive of the trial process 60 you and said six zero, 60, six zero 0 times wow. the judge directed that the microphone be turned off because he was yelling i guess into the through the video system wow and that wasn't allowing the case to proceed and the judge was concerned that the man get a fair trial despite all of this and so the judge appointed another amicus Uh, and the amicus was directed that he was not the man's lawyer uh, but he was there to like do things like ask questions of the witness or witnesses um, and that was, I think, significant because the, the the lawyer wasn't acting for the man. In fact, the man didn't want to even meet with the lawyer, right? I think on one one occasion he might have, but he the lawyer wasn't there to be the lawyer for this man who didn't want a lawyer, right? But nonetheless, the judge had appointed this amicus to try to uh, present... Uh, an alternative to the Crown's theory of the case so that the jury could come to a fair outcome, right, to ask questions of the witnesses and present perhaps a different version of what uh, might have happened for the jury to consider. Um, and then uh, the at the closing, what happened is this man started to make a closing submission, but it had absolutely nothing to do with the case. He just got up and started ranting about the FBI, the U.S. Army and Mind Control, And the judge eventually said, look, that's it. Uh, You can't do that. Uh, And the judge didn't uh, ask the amicus to make some alternative closing submission. And so on that fact pattern, the man was convicted of both counts. The case wound up in the Supreme Court of Canada. And so the Supreme Court of Canada was asked, well, what is the role of an amicus? What should they be doing? Was this fair? Was there a miscarriage of justice here? Um, And should the amicus have been doing more, like should they have been taking the role of being the man's lawyer? And the Supreme Court of Canada concluded, uh, first of all, well, there were certainly all kinds of very challenging circumstances and irregularities caused by the man's behavior, nothing that went on here amounted to a, a miscarriage of justice, pointing out that there's broad discretion on a for a trial judge to try to make things right and try to have a fair proceeding, as this judge was clearly trying to do in a challenging circumstance. Uh, and further, they pointed out that uh, an amicus is not the person's lawyer, um, right? You you can't force a lawyer on somebody who doesn't want one. If somebody insists on representing themselves, that's their right. Yes. Um, and the judge, uh, the Supreme Court of Canada, concluded that there is broad discretion to give amicus different roles. Like initially the trial judge appointed somebody to help with the jury selection, right? Because the person just didn't know what was going on or how to do that. Um, And then the Supreme Court account also found it was appropriate to do what the judge did here, which was to have somebody who was asking at least some relevant questions of the witnesses, uh, but that it wasn't uh, necessary that that person then like take on the role of pretending to be the person's lawyer who didn't want a lawyer that that didn't not doing that didn't result in a miscarriage of justice or an unfair trial uh, for this man who was screaming and yelling and talking about mind control. Yeah. Uh, and so the result of it is the two convictions for first degree murder stand. There's no need for a new trial. Um, and we've got now some uh, further um, a light shed on what is the role of an amicus. What can they be required to do? What are they not required to do? And broadly speaking, it the Supreme Court of Canada concluded that there is really broad discretion. Right. This is of course a human process, and there isn't a single role for what that person uh, is required to do, and that judges can appropriately, like this judge did, tailor what that sort of friend of the court is there to do. Uh, in terms of uh, trying to ensure that the trial is fair but whatever they're doing it doesn't turn them into the lawyer for the accused person uh, who doesn't want one right they're there to try to make sure the process is fair and like in this case maybe ask some questions or point out things that might be relevant uh, but they're not there to take over uh, for a person who doesn't want them taking over so that's what an amicus or in this case amici uh, are all about. All right, let's take our first break. Legally speaking
0: on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. We'll continue right after this. Back on the air here at CFAX 1070's Legally Speaking continues with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Up next, Michael, the B.C. Court of Appeal upholding a $5,000 award regarding a municipality and the disposal
1: of a sailboat. What What happened here? <laughs> Yes, indeed. I must say this has some resonance, because we do have these issues of these boats from time to time that appear to be sort of abandoned or washed up or that kind of thing. Uh, and so it's worth knowing what the proper procedure is uh, when there's a, a boat that is wrecked and maybe be uh, plucked out of the water or disposed of, and when you can and cannot do that. And this case, it arose from Bowen Island and it was a man who owned two sailboats. One was moored to Bowen Island, and the other one he was out sailing on. There was a storm. One of the vessels that was moored there broke away from its mooring, uh, and uh, people were concerned it was looking like it was going to run up on maybe another wharf or cause some damage. And so the municipality got contacted, and the municipality did the correct thing in terms of contacting, and this is under the, Kennedy, the Canada Shipping Act, the receiver of rec there is a person who is the designated receiver of wreck. it's a federal appointment hmm. um and i must say it's one of those things where if you go into a grade two class and ask everyone who wants to be a you know what do you want to be when you grow up you will have a number of firefighters and police officers you will have no one who sticks up their hand and says i want to be the receiver of wreck," but there may be an opportunity there Uh, And so the receiver of wreck is contacted and say, hey, we've got this boat. It's broken free. It looks like it might be causing uh, some damage. Uh, And in fact, things got worse. The boat sank. So now what? Well, the receiver of wreck, who you're required to report these things to, told the municipality, yes, you may go and recover the wreck. So the municipality hired a barge and I guess a crane or something to pull it up. And they pulled this sailing or this uh, sailboat up off the floor of the ocean uh, and they then chopped it up and disposed of it uh, in bins now that's where things went a little haywire because when you recover a wreck you can't just throw it away there's an obligation to tell the receiver of wreck hey i got the wreck and then it's up to the receiver of wreck to decide well what should become of it right uh, how much money should you get for your recovery efforts and how should that be disposed of or what ought to happen and the municipal government, in the form of the Bowen Island Municipality, didn't do that. And so they got sued. And the man sued the uh, the municipal government, the Bowen Island Municipality, saying, hey, you destroyed my sailboat, um, and you didn't have permission from the receiver of Wreck. And he succeeded, because indeed they didn't have that permission. But the issue then became, how much money is he entitled to for the sailboat that got thrown in the garbage? <laughs> Uh, and the man didn't come with what you would often have, which would be like a survey or some professional estimate of what the boat was worth. He had sort of his own personal estimates of things that included things like how many hours of work he put into the boat and how much sentimental value it had. Hmm. Uh, and furthermore, he he calculated a value he did, the man, of $95,000, including his labor and efforts, and then a bunch of other things, which is significant, including things like the upholstery and the clothing and the bedding and presumably food and electronics and other things that were on the boat and what the judge the judge and now the court of appeal concluded first of all is that the loss of some of those things wasn't caused by the municipality throwing the hulk away in the garbage because the things like the upholstery clothing bedding food, electronics, whatever else was on there, would have been destroyed when the boat sunk. And the municipality didn't sink the boat. They just got rid of the carcass (laughs) after they pulled it up off the uh, floor of the ocean. Hmm. And so the value shouldn't include things like the stuff that was already destroyed through no fault of the municipality. But there would have been other things on the boat, like tools or You know, some portion of the boat, which would have been maybe the sails, right, which wouldn't have been destroyed by getting immersed in water for a period of time. Uh, And furthermore, the uh, court and the Court of Appeal pointed out a couple of things that were problematic with the man's self-valuation of all these things, including there was no evidence that the time he spent lovingly working on the boat increased its value. Moreover, there was a more fundamental problem, which was that in an earlier case, where it was in his interest to do so, he claimed that he didn't own the sailboat. He claimed that his sister owned the sailboat. (laughs) Hmm. But now he showed up and said, no, 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 that was mine. And so the trial judge in the Court of Appeal pointed out, well, you can't have it both ways. Um, And so that casts some doubt on, I suppose, the man's claims about value. And so the result of all of that is that the A trial judge awarded him not $95,000, but $5,000 for the things that he found were thrown away without the receiver of rec giving permission. Uh, And the man appealed that to the Court of Appeal unsuccessfully. And the Court of Appeal said, no, the trial judge made appropriate uh, decisions in the case and findings of fact, and there was nothing uh, improper in any of that, and so the trial judge's decision has been upheld. So the takeaways there, the important takeaways include uh, that if uh, you're a municipality or indeed a person who uh, winds up in some circumstance with a wrecked boat, you can't just do with it as you please. Um, You are required to report that to the receiver of wreck and then take directions. Now, I should also say that once you do that, once you start recovering the boat and report it to the receiver of wreck... It also compels you to take any measures with respect to the wreck that the receiver of wreck directs. (laughs) So you've taken on a bit of a burden there uh, when you decide you're going to get yourself a barge and a crane uh, and uh, haul up the sailboat that's on the bottom of the ocean. You may wind up with some direction (laughs) from the receiver of wreck that might be expensive or inconvenient. uh, And depending on what that thing is worth, uh, that may be a challenging undertaking. So, when you're looking out there and wondering why doesn't somebody just come and deal with this boat that's come up on shore or that boat down the gorge or whatever it might be, bear in mind there is a whole legal structure around it. And if you don't do as the receiver of directs, directs, uh, you may find yourself on the hook for at least uh, the value of the boat. So that's the, uh, that's the case of the sunken boat and the uh, Bowen Island
0: Municipality. You know, I can see why people just sort of leave these wrecks where they are and not want to get involved after all that.
1: I think that's the, the must be the, uh, the uh, uh, legal equivalent of the advice in criminal cases. Don't talk to the police when you're the suspect in a criminal case. I suspect you're probably getting some similar advice if you speak to an expert in marine law. Don't touch the rack. <laughs> you may find yourself in court. Uh, there, up, there it is. <laughs> up next. The administrator,
0: it says here, of an estate applies to court to permit her to purchase the property owned by
1: the estate. Hmm, I have some concerns about that. What happened? Indeed, and you should have concerns. You've got a good legal antennae. Um, so the, pro- the issue here was uh, there was a uh, fellow who passed away who had three kids, uh, and the person who passed away did not have a will. Uh, the fellow who passed away uh, owned, didn't have a lot of assets but did have a modest property uh, which might be worth the most recent estimate was $284,000. It had a, a, an older manufactured home on it uh, and two acres in Port McNeil. That was the description of it. Uh, and because the man didn't have a will, one of the daughters applied to for a grant of administration to be able to manage the the estate, right, to distribute it. And the uh, as is required when somebody dies intestate like this, the requirement would be to equally divide the uh, assets amongst the, in this case, the three um, children of the man. Hmm. So that's what was being done. He didn't have a spouse. Okay. Now, the problem arose because the property was in not great repair. Uh, and so the daughter who was appointed as the administrator, uh, first of all, tried to sell it. And she listed it for sale for $185,000, but the best offer they got was 155 dollars which they didn't accept. The problems were with sewage system, water, and this and that. That daughter then moved into the property. Things now, you've just got to start asking yourself, what are you doing? (laughs) The daughter moves into the property and then spends several years working on it, fixing it up and doing things to it. And then the daughter decided that she wished to purchase it but she wanted to purchase it for less than the then assessed value. She'd made improvements to the property. This is where the trouble arises. And the trouble is that when you're an administrator like that, just like somebody who's an executor where a person had a will, that person has what's called a fiduciary duty Hmm. to the beneficiaries. You need to make decisions which are in the interests of the beneficiaries, not in your own interest, (laughs) their interest, right? Um, And there is a well-settled principle that a trustee like that um, can't engage in what would be referred to as self-dealing, like purchasing property from the estate that they're managing, because it's pretty obvious what kind of a conflict that amounts to, right? If you are setting the value and purchasing it, that's kind of incompatible with being the person who's acting for others, right? Uh, And so there is a, process whereby there could be an application made to a judge for permission to engage in what amounts to self-dealing. And that's what the daughter tried to do here. And so she made this application and then she made the argument to the court was, well, look, I've done all this work on the property. Yes, I lived there, but didn't pay rent. Uh, but on the other hand, I spent all this money fixing up the sewage system and fixing up the water and paying the mortgage. There's two mortgages outstanding. She paid those for a period of time. And so her argument is, well, look, you should give me permission to purchase the home uh, for what amounted to something like $100,000 below the most recent assessed value of it because of the work that was done. And the judge concluded, no, there's just no basis to to do that, right? When you're an administrator or an executor, you are... Uh, you have this fiduciary relationship to make decisions that are in the best interest of the beneficiaries. Now, she happens to be one of the three beneficiaries, but it's got to be in everyone's interest. Now, there's an exception to the, that. all of that. If everyone agrees, like if everyone's competent, adults, fully informed, if the other two sisters in this case said, look, yes, we appreciate all the work that you've done there, we understand that we might be able to sell it for more but the place would have uh, degraded and be worthless if you hadn't done all the work on it. We agree, right? If they agreed, that's okay as long as it's they're competent and fully informed. Uh-huh. But here they weren't agreeing, right? They're saying, no, no, I don't want it sold for this lower amount. And so uh, the judge refused the administrator's uh, request to do so, uh, but Did point out that it's not as if there's a a circumstance where there would be some serious unfairness to the person who was acting as the administrator. Because what should happen um, is that the property should be sold for market value, right? Listed. People uh, make offers and purchase it. And then at the end of the process, there can be, for an administrator like that, a process of passing accounts where a um, judicial official can determine uh, whether uh, the uh, how much money the administrator should be given for their work administering the estate, right? And so, in that context, the administrator would be able to come with, for example, look here is my receipts for my payment of the mortgage for the past three years, right? And here is my bill for uh, fixing the water system, and here is what I did for the sewage system, right? Here are all my accounts. Um, and it would be possible in that context uh, for there to be uh, a, an order that the administrator be paid for the her expenditures in preserving and fixing up the property. Uh, and indeed, an administrator could get permission to uh, be paid for all of their time and work, uh, engaged in all of that. So it's not as if there isn't uh, some process to avoid sort of the uh, unfair or unjust enrichment of the other beneficiaries, right? Uh, but the uh, court pointed out that they're just that fact, that that may occur at some point in the future, um, doesn't uh, authorize uh, the a reduction uh, in the value of the property and to allow compensation in that way. So the the overall picture here for people, the takeaway is that if you find yourself uh, uh, operating in one of those ways as an administrator or as an executor, you need to remember that in all things that you're doing, you need to make decisions which are in the best interests of the people you're doing that for, not for yourself. Uh, and in that regard, it's sort of similar to what, you know, for example, a lawyer would do when they're acting for a client or a doctor's doing when they're treating somebody, right? Those are also examples of where there's a fiduciary obligation. And the decisions being made need to be decisions made in the best interests of the beneficiaries, or the client, or the patient, or whatever it might be, and not decisions which are intended to somehow benefit the person who's acting in that fiduciary capacity. Well, so that's the uh, that's the case of the uh, administrator trying to buy the house. Michael Mulligan, in the
0: second half of our second hour every Thursday here at CFAX 1070, legally speaking. Pleasure as always Michael. Until next week. Thanks so much. Have a great day. All right. You too. Bye now.